Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world to WFIU listeners. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is Artyom Troitsky, the best-known journalist, organizer, critic, and promoter of rock music in Russian. Artyom, welcome to Profiles. Hello, Owen. You were born in 1955, um, the middle of the decade that gave birth to rock music in the United States. Was there something in your family background that helped develop your interest in rock music? Well, I think the only thing that has really helped to develop my interest is the fact that back in 1963, my parents went to work in Prague, the capital of now non-existent country, then called Czechoslovakia, now, of course, the capital of Czech Republic. And I've been living in Prague from 1963 till 1968. And I live there in an international community. So around me, there's been a lot of kids uh, from other countries, uh, which included also so-called Western countries, like Italy and France. They were all children of prominent communists from this country, but uh, this didn't prevent them from listening uh, to fashionable music of that time, and this was, of course, rock and roll music. So I first heard rock and roll in, uh, in 1963, and uh, there were, of course, uh, seven-inch singles by uh, the Beatles and the Beach Boys and some similar bands from... Uh, Western Europe, and I immediately loved the music because it was completely different from everything I've heard before that. I mean, the electric sound, uh, you know, the sheer joy and uh, energy of it. Of course, it couldn't be compared with uh, Soviet patriotic songs and military marches. So uh, I became a rock fan uh, in one moment, and like many other kids of my age, I was a very dedicated fan. Uh, for me, it wasn't enough only to listen to fantastic songs and, and dance to them and kiss girls to them, but I also wanted to know, you know, how, who are those people who play and sing and what are the songs about. And this is actually how I've learned English. I'm I'm 100% self-taught, and uh, you know, I just listen to these songs and. Uh, uh, sat uh, there with dictionaries, uh, translated these songs and so on. And by the time when I started to study English at school, I, I already spoke English better than my teacher. When you went back to the Soviet Union, was it difficult? Because at that point, rock music wasn't accepted and really wasn't that much available, was it, in Russia? Uh, of course, it was difficult, but I think it was rather difficult for me for purely personal reasons. I mean, I didn't have any friends back in Moscow, and, uh, you know, the whole lifestyle was totally kind of alien to me. And the climate was also much harder. So, <laughs> yes, well, I remember the uh, the first year of two of, of my uh, post-Prague uh, being in, in, in Moscow. It's, it's been really tough for me. From the musical point of view, I was very lucky because uh, of uh, some of my Prague friends who uh, returned to Moscow before me. I have met local rock musicians and was introduced to the local underground rock scene. 
and uh, you know like i was visiting uh, the very first rock concerts in prague back in uh, 66 and 67 i also became uh, a rock club uh, frequent visitor in in moscow of course uh, everything was far far less developed in the soviet union rock wise in uh, Czechoslovakia, rock bands uh, had access to radio and TV, and they've made records, and they've had uh, rock festivals in Czechoslovakia. Uh, nothing like that happened in the Soviet Union, and the whole rock scene was uh, put very deeply into underground, and uh, also... also uh, at the first stage in the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, all Russian rock bands, they've been actually cover version bands. They, you know, they didn't write their own songs and they only played uh, their versions of, uh, of songs by, you know, the, uh, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, later Jimi Hendrix, Cream, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple and, and so on. So it, it, it only was at the end of the 70s uh, that uh, we've started to have any convincing examples of rock music uh, in Russian language. From what I've read, um, it's my understanding that for the larger population in Russia, the first interest in rock music developed from the Beatles. Why the Beatles? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, the early American rock and roll, the 50s rock and roll, Elvis, Bill Haley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry and so on, they never really caught up in uh, Russia and the Soviet Union. And I think, and my theory, uh, which sounds quite con convincing to me at least... <laughs> is that uh, this has happened because American rock and roll was too unusual for a Russian ear, Russian or Slavic in, in general. American rock and roll was primarily about rhythm. You know, it was those rhythm and blues rhythms, minimal melodies, uh, maximum uh, drive. And, uh, you know, this is not exactly the kind of music uh, that is traditionally loved and appreciated by Russians. Russians are rather sentimental people. They like melodic songs. They like to sing along uh, with these songs. Uh, well, of course, f first they like to get seriously drunk and then uh, sing along. And, uh, you know, uh, and of course, you know, it's quite difficult uh, to sing uh, Tutti Frutti or even Heartbreak Hotel you know, when you're drunk and uh, sit there at a the table em embracing uh, similarly drunk uh, ladies and gentlemen. So I, I think uh, it's primarily for this reason uh, that uh, American rock and roll sounded too exotic and couldn't really become a massively popular thing. Uh, but when uh, Russian youngsters heard the Beatles, they immediately thought that, you know, this is our music. Because, you know, the Beatles, of course, they've kind of combined uh, uh, the electric uh, American and Afro-American rock and roll with uh, this kind of 
schmaltzy and melodic uh, old European song tradition. And this was something completely different. How did they hear the music? The, the, the question has to do with what were the sources of it. Later on, um, one had cassette recorders, but how did Russians get introduced to the early music? Was it other people like you that had spent time in uh, Eastern Europe or Western Europe? Well, I think I was rather an exclusion because very few Russian kids uh, uh, were lucky enough to live abroad. Well, the sources were rather different, but uh, I would say that the two main sources were a Western radio stations, and this was the times uh, when uh, a music uh, occupied a huge part in the transmissions of such uh, Western propaganda stations as uh, The Voice of America and BBC Russian Service and Deutsche Welle and, and so on. So a lot of us listened, uh, days and nights we listened to all kinds of radio stations. Like, uh, you know, I was uh, very dedicated and I would say a very professional a uh, shortwave fan, and uh, I've had a, a big timetable of different stations, you know, with frequencies, and my favorite was the Romanian Radio Free Europe. Of course, I didn't know the Romanian language, but they had a fantastic uh, DJ there named Cornel Kiriak, and he was one of the very few DJs at these stations who didn't only play current hits, you know, the singles, but he also played sometimes entire albums by artists who I like. So Radio Europa Libere, and this is how they were called in Romanian, uh, they've been uh, a station I listen to every night. And that, you would have the advantage that the Russians would not be jamming yes, the Romanian service. It, yes, exactly. The Voice of America and the BBC, they've been jammed. And, of course, they you know they didn't care at all about the Romanian Radio Free Europe. So uh, radio was one very important source of information. Uh, by the way, before rock and roll, radio was as important in the introduction of jazz music in the Soviet Union. And uh, Willis Conover, a famous American... Uh, jazz DJ on The Voice of America. He was the biggest uh, jazz star of all. I mean, in the Soviet Union, uh, Mr. Jazz wasn't neither Duke Ellington or Louis Armstrong or Miles Davis or uh, Charlie Parker or John Coltrane. Mr. Jazz was Willis Conover, I mean, a hugely uh, iconic figure. And somebody uh, that most Americans never heard of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, he was really monumental in the Soviet Union in the 50s and the 60s. So the second important source was the black market. All Western records uh, were on the black market and they costed a lot. I mean, uh, a brand new sealed album by a popular rock band could cost up to 70 or 80 rubles. And the average monthly wage in the Soviet Union at that time was 150 rubles. So a lot of people, a lot of young people, would pay like half of their monthly income 
to buy one LP by Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or Grand Funk Railroad. The black market, of course, uh, was uh, a rather criminal thing, as every black market in every country. It was operated partly by students from the third world countries, and we've had a lot of those students from Africa and Latin America who studied at uh, Soviet universities, uh, but on the way to their native lands and back, they've bought uh, Western records in, in Berlin or Paris or London or whatever, and then sold them here and made huge profit, of course. Uh, I think that uh, Western vinyl albums were as hot as American blue jeans on the black market and Marlboro cigarettes, but also uh, some Soviets dared to uh, to bring records to the black market. They were mostly uh, sportsmen and, and diplomats and sailors, uh, but also some uh, more exotic personalities uh, like uh, uh, I've had uh, friends in the Bolshoi Ballet, uh, so I, I've asked them to bring me the records I needed. Well, you... I guess, became famous for the first time, at least at the university level, when you were a student and conducting discos in the student dormitory. Was there some risk in that? Well, I think that uh, I really was the first DJ in Moscow and most probably in Russia and also quite probably in the whole of uh, the Soviet Union. Actually, the concept of, of disco was totally unknown in the country then. At that time, uh, it wasn't dangerous at all simply because nobody knew what is this. So I played records and students danced and I've also had uh, stories there told about my favorite bands and actually this is how I became a rock journalist. A lady from a popular youth magazine once came to one of my discos where I've been, I think, talking about Frank Zappa or, or someone, and, and after my performance, uh, she came to me and said, well, you're exactly the person who we need because we get a, a, a lot of letters from our readers, and they all want to know about popular Western uh, pop bands, and I've asked all our professional music journalists and critics, and they all told me that they have no idea what uh, is this music and, and whether it's music at all. Most probably it's just some kind of monkey sounds. Uh, so this is how I, uh, I became a, a rock critic and a music journalist. But it wasn't dangerous at all. I've, I've had to stop my DJing activities uh, after two years because then it became popular and there were already several more discos at the university. So the university comes from all... Komsomol is the Young Communist League. I mean, you know, the ideological guys who overlooked, uh, you know, all kinds of youth activities in uh, the university. They came up to me and said, okay, well, if you're playing uh, at a disco, we need, uh, we need to check your playlists. And I said, well, it's no way that I can submit my uh, my playlists to you because I improvised. You know, I don't really know what, what kind of music I will play. I have a pile of 
of records with me and I play them depending on uh, my mood, you know, the mood of the audience and so on. But, and they said, no way. You know, we, uh, you know, you have to give us a playlist. We will study it. We will edit out the titles uh, which we find ideologically suspicious. And then, of course, we will sign and, and seal it. And, and this is how you can be a DJ. And, of course, I said, no, I'm not going to, to work under such conditions. What was the concern of the authorities, whether in the Consumol or the the secret police? Was it cultural? Was it uh, ideological? Was it political? What, what were the concerns? I think uh, there were several concerns. The KGB and the Komsomol and the Communist Party, they were mostly obsessed with the ideological matters. So uh, they uh, didn't like rock music and tried to get rid of it, primarily because they've seen it as a sign of Western decadence, Western influence, generally speaking, you know, some kind of ideological virus uh, which uh, uh, contaminates uh, uh, young Russian people. Uh, then there was another force uh, which f fighted rock from a different perspective, and this was the Union of Soviet Composers, you know, the most powerful uh, Soviet uh, music organization. And they've been fighting rock uh, approximately uh, from the same positions as many American conservatives fighted rock back in the 50s. They said that this is degenerate music or monkey music, music which is not a music at all. I think this was an article in Literaturnia Gazeta. Um, this is a plague which unfortunately cannot be cured at this time. This is the moral equivalent of AIDS and we cannot find any remedies for it. This is not just music. This is a medium by which our young people are being drugged. This is the turf on which everything can grow, starting with drug addiction and prostitution and finishing with high treason and criminal offenses. I don't think we should ban rock music, but this is a ravine into which our young boys and girls are sliding. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh I've read some uh, some American articles from the mid fifties, uh, which said exactly the same things. To what degree was it the fear of Western influences, and to what degree was it fear of undermining the Communist Party within the Soviet Union? Well, I don't think I don't think that uh, the concerns went as deeply as. Uh, undermining uh, the Communist Party. Of course, uh, this was simply music. And uh, I think that a stronger uh, suspicions became evident already in the beginning of the 80s when we've had a lot of uh, Russian rock bands writing their songs with a certain degree of social and political command. Then... I've heard for the first time that uh, that rock music is anti-Soviet and dangerous uh, for uh, for the uh, state, not only for the moral uh, status of of Soviet youth. But this was a little later. This was in like eighty two, eighty three, eighty four, when uh, we've had uh, uh, plenty of. Uh, 
Russian punk rock and new wave bands uh, which sang very direct and very outspoken songs about, uh, well, not exactly about the Communist Party, but about, you know, the stupidity of life in the Soviet Union, the lack of uh, of freedom, uh, the oppression, the alienation, and so on. And at that time, there began a real war on war on on rock music, and uh, actually the whole genre has been banned in the whole country. Like I was also blacklisted, I couldn't publish my articles for a couple of years, and each concert could end up uh, in a police raid, and a lot of uh, rock performers uh, went. Uh, to jail or were suspended from any kind of, uh, of public activities. Uh, this was the scene uh, in the years like 82, 85. But then, of course, came uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, Perestroika and Glasnost, and they have rescued the whole scene. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Um, first, I wonder if you could share with us um, some selection of rock music that you particularly like? I think we cannot pass by Kino, led by the late, great Viktor Tsoi, the biggest Russian rock icon, who got killed in a car crash in 1990, uh, but throughout the 80s were you know, the most popular Russian rock performer, uh, really a very talented person who I think could could have become uh, uh, an international rock star because he was interesting, handsome, charismatic. He was half Russian, half Korean. I think that the music of, of Kino is also timeless. I mean, from time to time I hear some Western rock band sound exactly like Kino in the mid-'80s. Listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Before we talk about how things changed um, with the advent of Gorbachev and Glasnost, did the Soviet regime make any effort um, to counter rock music by the creation of some kind of popular music for Soviet youth? Uh, 
Yes, well, indeed, uh, the Western rock music became uh, so big in the 60s and the 70s that uh, the so-called counter-propaganda divisions of <laughs> of the uh, both uh, cultural and security institutions in the Soviet Union, they felt uh, the urge uh, to introduce a certain alternative to it because uh, the traditional and the official Soviet uh, pop music, the so-called estrada, was tremendously conservative. I mean, uh, you know, it looked and sounded, uh, you know, like Perry Como or Frank Sinatra or uh, Connie Francis in the 50s, and this was still in the 60s and the 70s. And, uh, and of course, uh, young people, they wouldn't... Uh, uh, subscribe to such m- musics and styles. So they've introduced the so-called vias or uh, VIAs, vocally instrumental ensembles, uh, which were like, again, uh, Soviet official pop music, but arranged in a modern way with electric guitars, synthesizers, brass sections, and so on. Musically, many of them followed in uh, the footprints of American so-called brass rock bands like Blood, Sweat and Tears and uh, Chicago. I guess another distinction I would like to to, uh, ask you to talk about is between the official and unofficial rock bands, what kind of difference did that make in the development of rock? Well, we've had this official and unofficial scene only in the 80s, I think, also at the end of the 70s. And the main difference was that the unofficial rock bands, they couldn't undertake any professional activities. I mean, uh, they couldn't get access to TV or radio. They never made any records. And also, uh, they didn't have rights to receive money for their public performances. So those luckiest of them who were uh, allowed to play uh, in public at all, they were considered the so-called the artistic self-activity, which is like an amateur activity. So they could be allowed to play at uh, like school parties or at some factory clubs, but not... uh, in real professional theaters, concert venues, let alone uh, sports arenas. You mentioned uh, that early on there was uh, a a use of um, English language lyrics. Um, What was it that finally motivated the change to significant Russian lyrics? It's a good question, Owen. I think uh, that uh, the main reason was... uh, that uh, we've had some very convincing authors like Andrei Makarevich from Time Machine, Boris Gribinshikov from Aquarium, Viktor Tsoi from Kino, Yuri Shevchuk. And they have created this trend of meaningful Russian language uh, rock songs. And uh, they have created this whole phenomena, uh, which is up to this day is called Ruski Rock, Russian Rock. And uh, maybe the most important feature of Russian rock is that it values the message uh, 
song lyrics above the musical quality. So a very normal thing about uh, typical Russian rock bands is that uh, they play rather badly and you definitely can't dance to it. And uh, like the the funky element and the sexy element is zero. Uh, but uh, the lyrics are fantastic. And I think that generally speaking, the poetical quality of Russian rock music is probably higher than the one of, uh, say, American or British uh, rock music. I mean, of course, you have several genius rock poets like Bob Dylan or or Jim Morrison or, uh, I don't know, Captain Beefheart, but they are rather an exclusion, whereas uh, almost every big Russian rock personality must be uh, also a very talented poet. One thing that's that's very absent from the rock music in the Soviet days is women. Why is that? Why so few women? Yes. I think, again, this is my theory, uh, which uh, doesn't have a proof. But I think that uh, in the early days, rock music was simply a very dangerous occupation. So, of course, we've had uh, so-called groupies, uh, but the music itself was uh, created by risky, adventurous, and rather brutal young men. Uh, so later, when rock music became just an integral part of pop music and show business in the nowadays Russia, the situation has changed, and now we have a plenty of uh, of girls. In in rock, we have all-girl bands, we have famous uh, uh, female rock stars. So now I think the gender balance in Russian rock uh, is more or less maintained. Let's go back then to the, the coming to power of uh, Gorbachev in 1985. What was the impact on rock music? Well, I think that rock music was among uh, those activities uh, which benefited most from the arrival of Glasnost and Perestroika because uh, the whole genre of rock music has been immediately uh, lifted from the underground uh, to uh, sports arenas and stadiums. And all those uh, rock bands who've been banned and, and whose uh, recordings have been distributed uh, on illegal tapes and cassettes, uh, they, you know, they've immediately, uh, within a blink of an eye, they became national celebrities, sold out big venues, uh, started to make a lot of money, started to represent n new perestroika Russian culture abroad. Uh, a lot of uh, Russian bands have uh, even uh, made uh, contracts with Western record labels, like Boris Gribinchikov from Aquarium signed uh, with then uh, uh, CBS Columbia and, and released an in international album in the U.S. and Western Europe. Uh, Gorky Park have signed uh, with Polygram, now Universal, 
and uh, Zvukimov signed uh, with Warner Bros. and recorded an album with Brian Eno uh, as producer. Uh, there's been a plenty of, of of interesting things going on then, but uh, there was also one bad thing because you know this classic formation uh, of Russian rock was uh, uh, has been created as an oppositional tool, and they've been inspired by fighting back uh, the regime, uh, you know, the government, you know, the Komsomol and and everything associated with it. So when suddenly they became uh, the regime itself, a lot of bands, they kind of, you know, felt absolutely lost. They didn't know what to think about and and what to do. And this was uh, the situation uh, in the beginning of, of the 90s when, uh, you know, this whole Russian rock phenomenon suddenly cracked down and uh, has been replaced by by other genres first of all uh, you know the the so-called papsa which is the russian equivalent for bad quality bland pop music did gorbachev himself ever address rock music talk about it what he expected from it what he thought about it no i know mikhail gorbachev personally quite well and he never was a rock fan. He himself, well, he's, uh, he was born in 1931, so by no means he belongs to a rock generation. And he likes to sing. He likes music in general. And uh, he always tries to sing uh, when he drinks, and he likes to drink up to these days. And uh, the music he likes is basically Russian folk music. He adores singing Cossack songs and uh, and Russian uh, uh, folk songs and also some uh, songs of the time of the Great Patriotic War and so on. But he has nothing to do with rock music. And unlike many other current uh, Russian leaders, he has never flirted with rock musicians. Let's pause now to listen to more music you particularly like. Another prominent 90s uh, act is a band called Mumitrol, led by Ilya Logutsenko, which I think uh, is uh, like the first Russian rock band of the new kind of postmodernist formation. Very eclectic, very ironic, and very much uh, West-orientated. Тебе повезло, 
role in Soviet media or should we say post-Soviet media has has changed um, over time. For a while you were on, on doing television programs. What exactly were those programs about? Well, I think I've always seen my role as primarily not really a teacher, let alone a guru, but as a, a person who enlightens people and informs them about what's happening. So this is why I wrote uh, back in the Soviet times uh, about Western rock music mostly. Uh, I simply wanted uh, you know the kids to know what is rock music, what are the styles, what is good uh, and what is bad about pop music in general and so on. Uh, then I've started to write a lot about local Russian and Soviet-bred rock music. Of course, uh, when uh, I became uh, a more or less officially recognized person, not just uh, an advocate of underground music, uh, I've been offered to do TV shows and radio shows, and I do them up to these days. Uh, my radio show uh, goes on for more than uh, two decades now, and uh, I think it may be com compared to what John Peel has been doing uh, in the UK. I uh, mostly play alternative and off-mainstream and non-chart music of different styles, could be electronic, alternative rock, uh, freak folk, lo-fi, psychedelic, uh, ethnic, whatever, from all over the world. And I try my best uh, to be as uh, anti-imperialistic as possible. So, of course, American and British music uh, still occupies big part of my, well, about half of my radio show, but I try to play also music from smaller European countries, Asia, Japan, uh, Latin America, and so on. And I also teach at, at universities. And I currently have two TV shows in Russia. One is uh, more or less late-night talk show based on my comments on current music videos, which are usually rather nasty. And another one, and it's called Professor Troitsky and Comrade Artemi. So it's a bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type of show in one person, indeed. Uh, then another one on our national channel called Cultura Culture. It's called uh, The Kings and Queens of Song, and this is... Uh, a show in which I tell stories about classic pop performers like uh, Edith Piaf, Judy Garland, uh, Paul Anka, Stevie Wonder, you know, these kind of monumental figures of the pop past. Uh, and I also teach at uh, two universities in Russia. I occasionally re release records on my label, thus helping some new upcoming underground talents. I'm still very excited about about music, and unlike many people of my age, I don't feel that uh, the music has degraded 
since the 60s and the 70s. Well, I think the importance of music has uh, decreased since that time. That's uh, that's for sure. I mean, you know, in the 60s and the and the 70s, rock music was uh, like you know the spine. You know the uh, the main resource of all youth culture. I don't think this is uh, uh, the case right now, but still, I think there is plenty of interesting music and talented people uh, working uh, in this field. So, along with uh, uh, my green activities, and I'm a, a big environmental activist. And uh, some political uh, adventures, uh, you know, I still do a lot in the musical field. You're now in your mid-50s. Do you feel it more difficult to keep in touch with current musical trends? It definitely is much more difficult to keep in touch uh, with current musical trends now, simply because it's, uh, it's not as clearly organized as it used to be. Because before we've had a music press, and records, and it was, uh, you know, it was like a city with streets, street signs, uh, houses, and so on. And now all all music exists uh, in the internet, and internet is more like a jungle with uh, dark paths, and uh, and it's very difficult uh, to orientate. In the internet, or it takes a lot of time to find something that uh, that you might like, and I'm afraid I I don't have enough time uh, to find all all the music uh, that I might find interesting uh, in the internet. You know, I I still find a lot, but uh, uh, it doesn't come as easy as before. How would you describe the current state of rock music in Russia? Well, if you asked me this question two or three years ago, I think I'd rather give you a pessimistic picture because uh, in these uh, zeros uh, of the 21st century, I think the whole scene was very stale, very boring. There were no new names and, uh, you know, I've just had this this feeling that uh, the scene uh, slowly dies. But right now, maybe thanks to uh, the political developments in the country and, uh, of course, uh, you know, our establishment gives all the good causes for all kinds of protest movements. And I always thought that the best rock music has been born under stress, you know, be it Vietnam War or economic crisis uh, during the punk rock explosion, uh, I think uh, that right now, right now, the scene is uh, more vibrant than it used to be in the previous 20 years. We have uh, plenty of uh, of new bands in Russia and uh, indeed the main uh, environment and the main source of inspiration for this newest wave of Russian rock music uh, is the Internet. Internet helps these bands to feel absolutely and totally independent from the state. They don't need the state-controlled TV, and all TV in Russia is state-controlled. They don't need commercial FM radio stations. 
They don't need music press, although it barely exists in Russia. And all those YouTubes and MySpaces and Facebooks, they give them much more opportunities than uh, the traditional media. Uh, therefore, also the trend, which is uh, very visible in Russia right now, and that is uh, English language bands. Do Dmitry Medvedev, the president, and Vladimir Putin, the prime minister, have any views about rock music in general that you know of? Vladimir Putin uh, knows very little about rock music and actually has rather bad tastes in rock music. I mean, he once said that his favorite rock band is a German heavy metal group called uh, The Scorpions. But generally speaking, he is not, uh, he's not a rock person. He rather likes Soviet patriotic songs and uh, pop crooners. Uh, but Dmitry Medvedev is a fully legalized and outspoken rock fan, and he likes the classic English rock music of the 70s. Uh, he's been cited as saying that his favorite bands are Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, would you believe it, and Deep Purple. <laughs> he has a fantastic hi-fi, high-end uh, audio system at home, which uh, audiophiles estimated at about $200,000 worth wow. of money. Medvedev uh, is uh, exactly the guy who, unlike Mikhail Gorbachev, likes to flirt with rock music and rock musicians. Do you think the Russian authorities in general now are willing to sort of let rock music exist and not interfere in any way, um, assuming that it's going to perhaps influence some people, but that it's not a threat? Well, I think that rock music has been fully legalized and recognized officially already 20 years ago. I mean, since then, there's been absolutely no question of whether rock music has a right to exist in Russia. There's no question about it. And now, you know, when, uh, you know, the head of the Russian state is... Uh, uh, rock fan, of course, you know, there can't be any questions about that. The problem is uh, not about the genre. The problem is about the contents of uh, of the songs. And here, uh, still some rock bands, including the DDT of Yuri Shevchuk and uh, my favorite band, uh, a band called Barto an electropunk band from Moscow, and some others, as well as some uh, socially and politically uh, active uh, rappers and hip-hoppers, they are still facing uh, uh, some problems in Russia. They are not the problems of the kind uh, that rock musicians have been facing in the beginning of the 80s. Uh, it's not that uh, their songs are are banned and they are banned from public performances and so on. But still, they don't have access uh, to any uh, state-controlled media, be it radio or TV. They have some problems uh, with police. Noise MC, the best-known and most outspoken Russian rapper, has been arrested recently in Volgograd after performing a song uh, which was very critical of, of Russian police forces. And uh, the same thing is now happening with Barto, 
because they have participated uh, at political rallies in in Moscow and also sang songs which were considered as extremist activities. Uh, so uh, such things are, are still happening in Russia, but frankly speaking, I'm glad that this is happening, you know, because it gives... It gives this sin, uh, you know, this kick in the ass. You know, it uh, it uh, it makes it more vibrant. It makes it more dangerous. And I think that above all, rock and roll is adventure. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been Artyom Troitsky, Russia's first rock DJ, music journalist, and entrepreneur. Artyom, thanks for being here. Thank you, Owen. All the best. And we close with more music, some selection of rock music that you particularly like. I would suggest a lady named Zimfira, who became the first Russian uh, female rock star. is very talented, and uh, she was probably the, the biggest uh, and the most happening person on the Russian rock scene. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.